I, I don't want to romanticize the second intifada, and I'm certainly not going to romanticize the, the terror that we lived and felt. But I do want people to understand that, um, that it was a completely different feeling, and there was a, um, there was a sense that, that we had taken destiny into our hands, and it was mm-hmm. just a question of time before we were eventually going to be free. Welcome to This is Palestine. I'm Deanna Butu. Sorry for interrupting this episode, but I just wanted to take the time to ask you if you'll consider donating any amount you can to our fall fundraising campaign today at imeu.org give. And if you start a Facebook fundraiser that reaches 10 donations or $250 before the end of October, we'll send you a This is Palestine t-shirt. The IMEU relies on supporters like you to keep our work going strong and making the impact needed to drive change towards freedom and justice for Palestinians. We look forward to providing you with more of the content you love, such as this podcast. Thank you. This month marks the 20th anniversary of the start of the second Palestinian uprising, the Intifada. An Intifada sparked when Likud party leader Ariel Sharon visited the Haram Sharif in Jerusalem under heavy Israeli guard to assert Jewish claims to the, to the site. Party members and a thousand riot police accompanied him. To crush these protests, Israeli forces used live fire, killing 50 Palestinians in the first week alone, including 13 Palestinian citizens of Israel. Some were shot in the back. Under the guise of the Intifada, Israel amped up its policy of home destruction, it tightened its closure regime, cutting off the Gaza Strip from the West Bank, and Israel resumed its assassination policy. Israeli forces raided Palestinian cities and towns, carrying out mass arrests and using Palestinians as human shields. To discuss the Intifada, my friend and colleague Amanda Saadi and I speak with veteran Palestinian journalist Nidal Rafet. Nidal was a freelance journalist who worked for a number of U.S. news media outlets during the Second Intifada. We hear from Nadal about her experiences during the Intifada, her memories, and her feelings about it. Amanda then turns the mic on me, asking me about my experiences during the Intifada. I hope you like the episode. Welcome, Nadal, to This is Palestine. Thank you very much, Diana, for being with you. So, Nadal, as I mentioned in the introduction, Today, or this week, marks the 20th anniversary since the start of the Second Intifada. And during that period, which many know lasted for many, many years, we saw Israel's killing of thousands of Palestinians, including Palestinian citizens of Israel. We saw Israel's destruction of hundreds of homes, its tightening of the closure regime, it's cutting off of Gaza from the West Bank, and of course the resumption of its assassination policy, as well as the construction of Israel's wall. You were a journalist during this period and witnessed much of the effects of the Intifada. How do you feel at this 20-year anniversary? Now, actually, when I go back, I said, uh, 
I, I can't believe that uh, through these 20 years, what we went through and what we, we witnessed during these uh, 20 years, just to, to recall everything we went through uh, during these 20 years and the demands for us as Palestinians are still the same. What is to end Israeli occupation, to, to live in freedom and self-determination, to have liberty and justice, you know, just to be able to, to really have a life, the main goal of uh, independence and uh, freedom. It's really, I think it's really sad. Uh, Palestinians, there was a lot of, um, it was a long journey. There was a big sacrifices that uh, uh, we saw from Palestinians uh, talking about uh, what you were mentioning, house demolition, uh, people that they got injured, wounded, uh, that they are still in the Israeli jail, that they are now even more than 20 years, 18, 15 years, and they are still um, in the Israeli jail. To think that we went through all this, we're still fighting for end of the Israeli occupation 20 years after just makes me uh, make me think of uh, what else needs to happen for the world to wake up and to say enough is enough Palestinians deserve a state now and not tomorrow because it's going to be too late. So Nidal, you know I've known you for quite some time and I've heard many of your um, accounts about the second intifada and what it was like to be a journalist during those days. What stands out for you the most when you think back um, to the Intifada and, and in particular some of the early days? Early days were just to see, especially in Jerusalem, because everything started at Al-Aqsa Mosque and in Jerusalem, and then immediately you can see the whole West Bank in Plain, in Ramallah, in Beit Lahim, in Nablus. Uh, to see small little kids uh, and others and adults, the way they were really engaged, people really believed in a cause and they were ready to go very far and to do everything to achieve and they didn't really care even about the consequences. Uh, but I remember is during the Israeli invasions uh, in Jenin, uh, the family of Isa and Maryam Wishahi, the way they were killed in their house, they had a handicapped boy, Munir. And I'm, I remember uh, when we went first to uh, the Ajinian refugee camp, the way, the rubble, the demolished houses, eh, it was like really what they call it, ground zero. Everything was leveled, eh, the destruction in the sense, and what also left inside the people of being horrified and afraid and again in Nakba in different ways and different means and in different tools and in different shape that Nakbi is always after us, even in 2000 and in 2002. I remember in Bethlehem, in the old city of Bethlehem, I will never forget the infant. It was in the old city and the picture of the way he was like still, it was his mom, she was killed and he was still bred, breastfed from his mom. And that is a picture. It is really kept in, your, in my mind that after all these years, I still, you know, recall and remember it. I remember just, you know, people that you, that we met and did interviews with them and they became poster hanging on the wall in the old city of Nablus. Uh, to think about this just sometimes make me, you know, you know, you just met them a couple of months ago and now they're gone. I will never forget the smell of blood. That was something I will never forget. Just to be... To be there and to, to see the scene of horrified people running again and again, afraid, and they didn't know where to go and what to do. And 
unsafe and they didn't know, scared. You can see the way they were scared in the eyes of people, men and women and kids and small little boys and girls. Things that now when I just go back to all these, um, it, it's like, I, I, it's really an experience that it's uh, not easy to uh, recall. So it's interesting that you're mentioning this because the for me, what also stands out is exactly that same in- incident of Salah Shahadi, which is actually where you and I met. And I still very much recall, the, it was for me the first time um, having the smell of, of blood. And, uh, and also the... It was the first time, for me at least, that I had a sense that um, that we were living in such a, a crazy place because at the time with the Intifada just coming, like it was, it was taking shape and taking place, but we never had a chance to really step back and, and do anything other than just live in that daily moment. And it was his... Uh, killing and the dropping of the one-ton bomb on his building, which killed 15 people, not just him, but also others in the building and destroyed many houses that were neighboring it, that made me, uh, that was the moment for me that I felt um, this great sense of, of insecurity. Before that, I was obviously very insecure, but that was the moment in which I, I got that immediate sense of um, of that we could be killed at any moment and be able to justify our killing uh, with, you know, without it, without doing anything. What was that? Did you ever have that moment, Nidal? Was there ever a moment where you really felt completely insecure? Yeah, uh, there were actually a couple of uh, these moments, but I remember very well uh, the April 16, 2002, that was still during the big uh, Israeli invasion to the Palestinian city, cities and towns. Then I was in Ramallah that day. It was one day after the arrest of uh, the Palestinian leader, uh, Marwan Barghouti. Uh, we wanted to go to Ramallah and uh, we're coming to an area uh, of Al Masyun. Uh, I was uh, with, the, with the television and we had a big van. There was Usama, the driver. I remember he was sitting in, the, in front, of course, he was driving. And we were on the right behind him when the Israeli soldier shot at the car. I witnessed that and immediately, you know, we were, I was like uh, laying on the floor because uh, I thought maybe that will be more safe. I started screaming, Osama, go back, Osama, go back. But I freaked out. I remember I was really screaming in a way that I thought that we're going to be like, you're seeing death in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time ever that I was, uh, that I'm not sure we can stay alive after this. Since then, and of course, he started going back, going back until we left the area. But we were horrified from the scene of the bullet. And the bullet, of course, it entered from the uh, behind to the camera. It stayed in the camera. If, we, if somebody was sitting in, on the third row of the, this van, he will be killed. This is where I felt, this is where I felt that our lives doesn't matter to anybody. Because yes, Israel can justify the unjustified and they can always say, we didn't know, we didn't see, we didn't see, it's not us. I remember when we wanted and I was, I insisted that we go and uh, we will file a complaint. 
and they were saying, are you sure it was the Israeli uh, army? I said, of course. And I remember, it's like, you know, the, 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 the whole thing that you, just uh, the scene, and to be, tra you know, the trauma that you live after. I, th I think that a couple months or even years after, it wa I was uh, traumatized from that uh, moment, from that day, from that experience. If I got injured, if I lost my eye, or if I will be paralyzed all my life, they will actually blame us as TV crew risking our life in this war zone area that day, that moment, that, and I, and for the world it was maybe, I, I don't know who even, you know, it was so much of news that day, it, it, it was not even to be mentioned, who will care? And then you're facing, it was your life. No, Nadal, a lot of the focus on, in regard to the second intifada, was always about um, the violence. And yet so much of the Intifada was actually uh, nonviolence, um, but met of course with a lot of Israeli violence. Can you talk about that in, at all? Recognition, we are fighting because we want recognition. According to the UN resolutions, it's the right of anybody who's living under occupation to resist. But, but when it comes to Palestinians, it's not okay. It's not really fair the way they come and judge our cause. The second thing is that uh, they, they don't see the Israeli violence. They can always justify it. Even when they will see Israeli, uh, Israel is bombing in Gaza, they will always ask Israel to self-restrain as if it's like they see only victim, Israel only as victims, and they don't understand that Palestinians, all what Palestinians want is to be able to live like anybody else in the world. I do believe that we have to live and our kids can live like any other kids in the world. And we don't deserve less. And we don't deserve more. We want to have a life like any human, any place in the world. I don't think that we're asking for something impossible. And, and this is where I felt that they will always see black and white, the good guys and the bad guys. And Israel can always justify unjustified things. And this is where I was like, wait a minute, what's happening? Why it's like this? And I started asking these questions. It's really sad. Palestinians, you know, they, they need to understand uh, what does it mean resistance in the sense of people, when you're talking about, uh, about uh, land being confiscated, when you're talking about your house, you want to be able to live. People in East Jerusalem are asking sometimes more than 10 years for a permission for building a house. In the end, they don't have the permission. They end up building their houses, paying fines every single month. In the end, they got this demolishing order. And what they are asking, that they, what they want to expect, that the people and the bulldozer and the Israelis can come and demolish houses for Palestinians and there is nowhere to go and where to live. And the people will be standing still, not doing anything. And if they are doing anything to confront this, they are terrorists. I think it's not fair at all. And this is Israeli violence. This is what Israel shouldn't be doing. Israel should stop their occupation and be a normal state because this is abnormal what they're doing and what the way they are behaving with, with us. In, 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 if we're talking today about what's happening in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and can't, they can't expect that Palestinians are going to be sitting still. So that's why there was the first intifada in 1987. And that's why there was another intifada in September 2000. You know, Nadal, I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, or if I didn't mention um, the fact that Israel gunned down 
13 Palestinian citizens of Israel in the first three days of the Intifada. Uh, do you think that this marked a turning point for Palestinians in Israel? Yes, definitely. Palestinians always saw themselves, Palestinians in Israel always saw themselves that uh, there is no equality. There was uh, always uh, this uh, fight over uh, the recognition I was talking about. What does it mean to be a Palestinian? What does it mean that uh, this will be expressed in the curriculum at school? That uh, you will be, uh, we commemorate Nakbi on the 15th of May every year. Today, Israel doesn't allow Palestinians even to commemorate and to say the word Nakbi. We know that there was always a, 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 a inequality and we were fighting for that and we were fighting for changing the curriculum and we were uh, all the laws against us which we are talking more than 65 laws by law. You are not allowed as an Arab to buy a, a, a land. A, they say that this belongs to Kakal which is the Israeli national fund and you're not allowed simply because you're an Arab. You're not allowed to study your history and your uh, authors and your poets and your uh, writers simply because they see all this incitement. You are not allowed to say the word even Nakbi. And every time you're asking why they take our land and why they're taking our uh, jobs and why they're treating us this way, they will tell you, we can't tell you for security reasons. This just tell you about the mindset, the way the state of Israel see the Arabs. And they can always justify it for security reasons. I will do everything to make this place a better place to live because like this, it's unbearable. Palestinians in Israel today, they see that this is not a way that a state will act with their citizens. When you just shoot and you can get away with it and not even one police was charged. Well, thank you very much, Nadal, for sharing your experiences um, with us today on This is Palestine. And I look forward to having you on in future. Thank you very much. So what would you want us, those of us too younger that weren't in Palestine, to understand about the Intifada from your first-hand experiences? especially as such an important part of our collective history, both within the diaspora and in Palestine. I think that what I want people to remember from the Intifada, the second Intifada, is, um, is actually a lot of the things that weren't covered in the media about the Intifada. Um, for example, the way that the media portrayed it and the way that it was dealt with a lot here in Palestine by the Palestinian leadership was as though it was something that had to be crushed. It was something that had to be done away with. And yet there was so much that was part of the Intifada that was about um, changing the status quo. And that part is the part that I think um, we have to recognize and build upon. For example, when the Intifada first happened, there was a lot of international pressure and then a lot of pressure on the part of the Palestinian Authority to say, it's time to stop the Intifada, time to stop the Intifada, time to stop the Intifada, because in their minds, the equation was, if there's an Intifada, then there isn't going to be um, negotiations or there isn't going to be a Palestinian state. And yet what we ended up seeing was that um, that that was actually so much more different than, than the reality actually is. It's not that the Intifada 
highlighted or was the, the opposite of the intifada was that, um, that there is no, or the result of the intifada is that there is no freedom and no state. It was actually that the intifada highlighted exactly what Israel had intended for us for such a long period of time, which is to put into place a system in which we are completely trapped in, to put into place a system in which uh, we are blamed and told that we have to not act violently and to deflect from their occupation, their apartheid. And so I think for me, the parts that I, are, I want people to remember is just how much this Intifada was about shaking up the system and about throwing away the system of negotiations and uh, demanding better. And I only wish that there had been a leadership that was there to embrace it and to be able to carry it forward. Now, for me, that being said, there were a lot of things in it that I, I don't think that people, um, people today really see or understand, which was the, I know that today in Palestine, we all live with the insecurity of what our day-to-day -day looks like, um, whether you'll be able to pass a checkpoint, whether you'll be able to uh, to build your home, whether whether um, there's going to be a massive closure, you know, all of those things, um, whether they're going to, the army's going to invade, I mean, all of that still exists. The, the difference between that and uh, the time of the second intifada was that it, there, it was such a jarring sense of, um, it was so unpredictable which is to say that you know some days you, you you always knew that it was bad but there but you always but you and you could never really predict whether you'd be able to um be alive the next day mm -hmm. we still obviously have that today but it was so immediate and 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 so um it just it was it felt like it was always closing in on you and closing in on you and closing in on you. And it just, it was just the sheer numbers of people that we were seeing being killed every single day and their lives just going completely unnoticed by, um, by so many of us. And the, the, um, the sense of um, just how, um, I'm having a hard time finding the words, but just how close everything um, just how close everything was. You know, one thing that I, I was telling you earlier, Amanda, is that the things that I, I still can't get out of my mind were the posters. You, know, you, you would see posters of people who had been killed and the poster wouldn't even last for a day before it was pasted over with another poster. And then that poster wouldn't even last half a day before another poster was put up. And, and so we lived our lives just looking with these images of people around us who were killed by, by Israel. Um, they, and they were all walks of life. They were, all, they were men, women, children, the elderly, the young. Um, and it was, it was just so horrifying to try to have any semblance of a normal life because all around you, all that you ever felt was um, death, destruction, 
massive insecurity. And when it got to the point where you could see that kids were able to distinguish between gunfire and tank shell fire and be able to assess whether, whether it was safe or not safe to go in that direction. Um, I mean, these are the things that young kids who were living in Palestine grew up with, unfortunately. It, yeah, it just shows to me like how disposable Palestinian bodies were. You know, they were just posters and every day a new one, a new one, a new one. And for me, at least coming from the diaspora and, you know, hearing stories about the first Intifada from my mom, there is a sense you romanticize the revolution, you, rom you romanticize the Intifada. But until you're there, if you're, you, you have these firsthand accounts where you, it wasn't just resistance, it was, there's so much more chaos within it that just sticks in your mind forever. I see my mom's eyes when she talks about the Intifada. And yes, there is this, this you know, idea that yes, we, we had um, revolution in our, in our mind and that was what we wanted, but there is so much more disposability that, that came with it that we were, that's uh, interesting to hear. What stories or, or experiences stand out to you the most? For, for me, um, the things that stand out the most, uh, senses. For example, the, the constant sound. The, it we would hear almost every day the screeching and it's a very loud sound of uh, tanks through the streets of Ramallah. And just how, when a tank comes through, um, how slowly it moves, but how devastating. Because they would always, um, the army was more often, more often than not, would crush over a car that was in its path. So you could just imagine the sound of hearing that and the sound of tank fire and the sound of shooting and the sound of Apaches um, and the sound of, of F-16s. It just, the sounds were, were always there. And then in terms of the, the sites, I already mentioned the posters and the fact that we were always just looking around and seeing new posters. And it got to a point where Many of us didn't know how to cope with, um, with all of this trauma that we were surrounded by. And so we would often joke about what we'd want our poster to look like um, if we were gonna be the ones who were gonna be killed. With, uh, with people saying, oh, I look terrible in yellow, so don't put, um, don't put the Dome of the Rock behind me. You know, because that was our coping mechanism. Um, but then the other thing for me was, was smell. And in fact, the first time um, that I ever met, my first encounter with Nadal was um, in Gaza when Salah Shahadi was murdered. This, he, he was, uh, it was late at night, I think around midnight, and we heard, all of Gaza heard, a bomb drop on a building, a residential building in Gaza. And it took out the whole side of uh, the building, killing 15 people, including 10 children. And, and 
crushing homes nearby. It's not like you, you drop a bomb and it confines to this one building, um, but you're destroying homes that were nearby. And the, 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 what I will never forget of that moment was just this, the smell of, of blood and how um, I didn't realize that blood had such a smell. Um, and we could all smell it. And I, I met Nadal that night as we saw um, people nearby trying to go through the rubble and pull out what remained and, and try to pull out people who were under the rubble and people trying to pull out possessions from under the rubble. Um, and the screams and you know, so it was all together, the sight and the sound and the smell. And I'll never forget that the next day, um, the coverage was of these white plastic chairs. And that's it. They didn't talk about what we had all witnessed that night about these people trying to get their neighbors out of rubble, um, about you know, people trying to salvage what, little what few possessions they had, uh, the smell, the, the sounds of screaming, the traumatized kids who were wake waking up, who were, who were shaken in the middle of the night at midnight from the sound of a bomb, and mothers and others trying to comfort these kids. You know, nobody, nobody talked about that. It was just these plastic chairs that were going to be set up for a morning tent. Um, and that was it. And that was when, you know, it's odd to say, but that's when I ended up, that was what, our, what my and Nadal's bond ended up being, was, um, was over this very, this very traumatic event that stands and will forever remain um, seared in my mind for all of the the sight, the sound, and most particularly the the smell. You know, information can spread so quickly via social media. We, you know, if there's a checkpoint that's closed within seconds, everyone will find out. You know, if someone's martyred in seconds, it's on social media. How then, you know, with um, the limited technology, how was information so quickly spread across um, during the Intifada? There were a lot of different uh, there were a lot of different methods. So first, people saw one another um, more in terms of face to face things than I think they do today, and there was a lot more calling. Like we, we would always get telephone calls um, updating, and we always had these like, phone trees, right? So if I found out something, I would call Nadal, or if she found out something, she would call me, and so information it spread quickly enough. But at the same time, uh, not quickly enough to, to really do anything about it. For example, we were often um, finding out about invasions in, in, in particular in Elbire um, after it happened, which is to say that it meant that, that uh, young Palestinian men, because it was usually men who were targeted, were by then um, either arrested or... Um, or killed. 
or uh, in some cases like locked up in their own in their own homes so it, it just it really varied like it's interesting that you're saying that um, people weren't you know you would hear about something after the fact you know that there was you know army tanks or something and comparing it to now you know I used to live down in Musbah and uh, in Ramallah and you would hear a tank come and within seconds you know there's boys in the street there mobilized ready you know in front of the tank and um, it's just interesting to see how quickly now we can mobilize versus versus then we find out after the fact yeah yeah I, I don't want to romanticize the second intifada and I'm certainly not going to romanticize the the terror that we lived and felt but I do want people to understand that um, that it was a completely different feeling and there was a um, there was a sense that that we had taken destiny into our hands and it was just a question of time before we were eventually going to be free. Thank you for listening to This is Palestine, a podcast brought to you by the Institute for Middle East Understanding. The IMEU is a nonprofit focused on giving you access to untold stories, facts, and expert sources on all things Palestine. For more information, please visit our website at www.imeu.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the IMEU. Please don't forget to subscribe. I'm Deanna Butu. Thanks for listening.